Thank you, colleagues. Now we've uh, moved to the furniture. It's customary at uh, these prize givings to um, combine them with uh, a public lecture, and it's um, a particular pleasure this evening to welcome our lecturer, Professor David Spiegelhalter. Um, particularly appropriate in this context as um, risk, which is one of the themes that David is going to talk about, is um, very much part of, of the agenda of issues that um, LSE 100 covers. So um, we're very, very happy to have David. Let me introduce him um, up properly for you. Um, David studied at the University of Oxford and University College London. University College London? Oh, good <laughs> Lord. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. Yes, and um, supervised by somebody called Adrian Smith as well. Anyway. He's a distinguished British statistician, a very distinguished British statistician, and we're very glad to have him here. He's a fellow of the Royal Society, awarded an OBE in 2006, and in 2007 was elected Winton Professor of the Public Understanding of Risk in the Statistical Laboratory, University of Cambridge, and he's a fellow of Churchill College, Cambridge. David has a distinguished research career at a number of UK, United States universities. He has um, worked with the Medical Research Council on at the Biostatistics Unit at Cambridge. He's been an honorary lecturer at the University of Hong Kong um, and is presenting at the 2013, oh, this may actually have happened, at the 2013 Cambridge Science Festival. Um, yeah, did that. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, More importantly, he hosted the BBC4 documentary Tales You Win, The Science of Chance, which described the application of probability in everyday life. Tonight, David will be talking about thinking and feeling about risk. Can they be separated? So without more from me, grumbling about a UCL alarm on our stage, can I throw the stage open to David Spiegelhalter. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Okay, so a real great pleasure to be here and a real honor. Uh, I, I feel so humbled when you know, hearing about these students and their achievement being the top 1% of this great mob of people doing this course. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I suppose I'm, for the parents and people who have come for, to see the prizes, I'm, I'm sorry you've got to sit through me for, um, for a little while now. Um, but I, I, I suppose this course, I think, is, is extraordinary. And I speak as someone who's been working in statistics all my professional life and still works in a maths department at Cambridge. But since I got this job, as you will see, I've had to essentially re-educate myself into psychology, anthropology, sociology, and of course in a very amateur way, as you will see, I've had to see that risk and the areas I'm interested in is just a really broad subject. And by taking a really narrow professional view, as I have in the past and many of my colleagues still do, you really get, I think, a misleading view. And that's really what my talk is about how you cannot just take a single subject, a single perspective view of a subject of an area such as risk, and we just have to take an integrated approach. So I hope to persuade you of that in a faintly entertaining way. Let's see if I can make this, oh yeah, that's me, that's me, is that working? Yeah. Um, so uh, I hope I got the date right, the place right, even the title right. Okay, um, I'm, I'm the Winton Professor, a little plug, that's Winton 
for Winton Capital Management, a hedge fund who endowed my chair. So I'm paid by a hedge fund. I don't do any financial stuff at all. But this, you know, I'm an object of charity. It's great. I love it. I recommend it to you all. And, um, uh, and uh, we've got a website, Understanding Uncertainty. I do a lot of school stuff, both going into schools and also increasingly advising on curriculum development for probability and statistics at GCSE, at A-level, and this incredibly exciting move towards core maths, this um, uh, new 16 to 18 maths qualification that will be introduced for people who are not doing A-level maths. I think this is a, a fantastic opportunity, which I'm not going to talk about, but um, as you can tell, it, I'm really enthusiastic about So I've got this website, and I blog, and we discuss risk and uncertainty in the news as it happens and stories and things like that. I'm on YouTube. That's not very clear. Um, I'm Professor Risk. There's two of me there taking my clothes off. So you can, if you Google Professor Risk, you can see me on YouTube. It's had about 80,000, 70,000 hits or something like that. But it's still, you know, it's not exactly up to um, Shakira or something. But it's, it's not, you know, just go and see it. Bump it up a bit. Bump it up a bit. And we do school stuff. As I said, I do schools, everything from sort of um, uh, essentially year, year seven, year eight upwards. Um, because I just think it's absolutely important. Okay. Oh, and I can't resist it. The plug is my book that's just come out with Michael Blasland, copies of which, I believe, may be on sale outside. And so if anyone's sort of <laughs> rash enough to buy one, it's rather good. It actually is quite good. You know, I do. I really do say it's quite good. And it's going to cover, you know, pretty well all the sort of material I'm talking about this afternoon is in there, along with more numbers than you can shake a calculator at. So um, I, I shall be signing those if anyone wants it afterwards. Okay, so, oh, and that, that, right, that's my most important claim to fame. Do people recognise that? Yeah. Anyone who recognises that has either got an eight-year-old child or the mind of an eight-year-old <laughs> child. It's the Wipeout course in Argentina. This is in Buenos Aires. And um, I went over the big red balls and trying to win 10,000 quid. And um, unfortunately, I, I'm... <laughs> If you're a school's audience, I'd show the video of me making a complete fool of myself doing this. But I'm not going to because we haven't got time. But actually, I didn't do too badly at all. Out of the 20 contestants on that, ish, on that weekend, I was seventh, which isn't bad at all. So I'm not ashamed of it one little bit. And Cambridge University were very supportive of this. I, must say. I mean, it's not Big Brother, thank you. It's not, there's nothing as bad as that. <laughs> Okay, so um, I'm going to start, really, with Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Are people, who's fam vaguely familiar with that? Yeah, I think a lot of you would be, yeah. So he's a very famous psychologist who's done an enormous amount in behavioural economics and, and uh, economic theory. He won a Nobel Prize, although he's a psychologist, he won the Nobel Prize in economics. And his recent book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which covers his career, especially working with his colleague Amos Tversky, who's sadly dead, really is all about two ways of thinking, what he calls system one and system two. And it's, it's so simplistic, but in fact, you know, in experiment after experiment, they've shown how we can use these two ways of thinking. Um, system one is what you might call the emotional one, the automatic system, the fast thinking. Poof, we just think, we just do it, we just do it. Which is fantastically effective in, in so many things we do. You know, when we cross the road or something like that, we do not sit there and weigh up the odds of various things happening. We just cross the road and do it. The system two is the slow, the thinking slowly, the more what you might call rational, um, you know, analytic or even mathematical way, the effortful system where we stop and say, hang on, hang on, no, let me really, really try to understand this. Sit down and let's be cool about it. So this is hot and cold, you can think of it, all sorts of ways of, of doing it. Um, so, um, and, and really I'm going to elaborate 
these two ways of looking at risk in particular. Um, he's, he and his uh, colleague Tversky brought up all sorts of areas in which we use heuristics when we're thinking fast to um, uh, guide our behavior and in interpreting information that we've given. So I just want to show some examples of some of the things that he suggested. I'm not going to go all through them, availability and things like that. One of the ones is very crucial is anchoring. Anchoring is where the first thing we hear, we actually focus on it. We find it really difficult to shift away from it. So I'd like to just show examples of how anchoring is used or maybe misused in some risk communication. So for example, um, this is the cone of uncertainty. <laughs> the cone of uncertainty. You're living in the cone of uncertainty when you're in the hurricane zone of, of the US. So this is produced by the National Hurricane Center. And what it represents is when a hurricane, what was this? This was Rita in 2005, is offshore, the area it might cover. And in fact, what it is, a mathematical model that just says it's two to one chance it's going to be in the white area rather than outside. So this is a 66% covered region probability region for where the hurricane might go. Unshaded, just a, a region. And then they plot the central line, the, the you know, most likely path of the hurricane. Now, what was found is that people who lived there thought, oh, we're okay. They didn't evacuate. The house got flattened and they got a bit fed up about it. And there really was a public complaint about this sort of graphic. And there were academic papers written about the black line. The black line because people anchor and focus on that black line. So what happens now? There's no black line. Black line's gone. So here's Hurricane Irene in 2011. We just get the cone of uncertainty. No black line because people get too obsessed with that black line. Um, this is just one, you know, this is a, you know, a probability metaphor, a two to one, two to one. There's um, another metaphor that was brought in for hurricane prediction. And I'd like to know what you think about this one. This is one that was introduced again for Hurricane Irene based on multiple computer-generated paths using different um, models for the, for the atmosphere of what might happen to the hurricane. So these were different computer runs, a sort of Monte Carlo type experiment but with slightly different starting points and with different models of the possible paths of the hurricane. So, and they put that up, they went straight onto national news. No experimentation, no checking, straight onto national news. Possible paths of the hurricane. This is using a metaphor of possible futures, one where anyone familiar with sort of Monte Carlo analysis will be very familiar with. We think of it, we generate lots of possible futures and look at the fan of where they might occur. Now this, do people like this as a sort of way of communicating uncertainty? People like it or not? No. Oh, I really like it. So there. <laughs> oh well, never mind. Can't win them all. I, I think I like this as a metaphor of possible, possible futures, rather than even the trying to produce a probability distribution, because it represents the variability, the uncertainty of what might happen. Um, financial people here do financial stuff. So here, these are the Bank of England fan charts that Mervyn King in introduced and, and stuck with all his career, in spite of enormous criticism of them by the press and others. What these represent are, again, a sort of fan of uncertainty about what might happen, in this case, to GD growth in GDP over the next three years. And, and these are the intervals here. The outer one is a 90% interval, 80%, 70%, um, governed by um, both a model and judgment from the Monetary Policy Committee produced this. So there's a couple of things to note about this. The first thing is there is no central estimate provided. You know, for years he realized that if you provide a central estimate, everyone fixates on that. The Bank of England say growth will be 3% in two years' time. 
He won't provide a central estimate. I mean, he, they provide one for the past because they, they don't know what's going to happen in the future. They don't even, don't even know what happened in the past, for heaven's sake. So, no or particularly what's going on at the moment. So there's, a, you know, there's some real uncertainty here. The other aspect to note about this is, something, is the fact that this is only a 90% interval. There's 10% over, left over. And that is essentially unassigned. There's a, you know, there's a 5% here and a 5% there where it's sort of, blah, your guess is as good as mine. A 1 in 20 chance it should be somewhere down here and when they're not going to say where. Uh, which is just as well because I've deliberately picked 2007 uh, because that's what actually happened. <laughs> but down here somewhere, there's not room enough on the, like Fermat, there's not room enough on the paper to show what happened. Um, and uh, this is completely unashamed about this. Because oh, they warned you, they warned you, 1 in 20 chance. This is a well that they've checked the calibration of this. That 90% interval contains the actual growth in 90% of the cases. It's just that in 1 in 20 chance, it, things could go really haywire, which it did. And so there's, a, I think, a, actually a good example of quite good risk communication, although they don't make it clear enough that, in fact, this bottom bit is smeared out down to here. That's, I don't think that's very clear in the graphic, that almost bets are off about that. And these... these and so I think, but in fact, not producing the central estimate is a really important point. Because um, the dangers of communicating even one scenario means that the media in particular just get obsessed with that one. And if people can remember back in the swine flu episode in 2009, four years ago, Liam Donaldson, the chief medical officer, produced some data which had as a worst case scenario 65,000 deaths. Now, that was a ludicrous statement even at the time, and he knew it, um, you know, the, the, it was quite clear that the, um, the epidemic wasn't going to be anything like that serious, even given the information at the time. It was complete fixation on the 65,000 deaths. If most people remember, Liam Donaldson said there was going to be 65,000 deaths, whereas there are 240 less than a standard year of flu. So, you know, it was, it was um, you know, a ludicrous statement, um, but yet everyone obsessed on it. Shows the real danger of, of you know, or the real need to avoid anchoring, to learn from what Kahneman said. The other thing, one of the other things that Kahneman really pushed is this idea of framing, that the mere way in which numbers are expressed can, in, can change our impression of them. I, first of all, may, may, I want to make clear, I'm not saying people are stupid. Oh, this is for stupid people. This is you, me, and all of us are influenced in this way. This is not talking about the stupid, irrational pub public. This is talking about all of us, and which I hope to demonstrate. So here's a nice example of framing. You lot are in the top 1%. Let's look at um, youth, violent youth. So this is what's called a positively framed advertising message. This was on the London Underground. I don't know if people remember this campaign, the 99% campaign. It's not very clear because I just clicked on my mobile phone in the Underground. 99% of young Londoners do not commit serious youth violence. It's a positively framed message, very different from what the newspapers do. So, of course, I stood there with my mobile phone, and you start thinking, well, 99% of young... Oh, that means that 1% do commit serious youth violence. Young Londoners, that's about 15 to 24, it's about 8 million population, that's about a million people, 1% of a million is 10,000. Oh, my God! There's 10,000 violent maniacs running around the city. Now, this is a really frightening message. <laughs> Terrifying. You're not supposed to think that. You're influenced by the framing. It doesn't say 10,000 violent young maniacs running around the city. That is not a good advertising campaign. So, but if you start thinking about it, if you think slowly, 
then you can start deconstructing these numbers. And this is what I'm sure has been part of the thinking behind the LSE 100 course, is that when we see information, we see evidence, we have to think behind it. Why are we being told this? And how is it being framed to influence us? I, I sp love spotting these. They're great. If someone can find any ones, please send them to me because I love them. This is a really nice one um, of a, a paper in Nature Genetics a couple of years ago. And it was an immensely tedious paper. Um, you know, lots of authors as usual. And it, fa it found this, you know, not very common genetic variant in 10% of people which reduced the risk of high blood pressure. Yeah, yawn, uh, got published, no coverage at all until a really clever press officer got hold of it. Um, and just rewrote the headline into 9 in 10 people carry a gene which increases the chance of high blood pressure. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? Genius. I hope they got a medal, you know, the press officer's medal for, you know, most inflated coverage of a story. This went around the world. This is on all the newspapers. You can Google it. You find the endless repeating on it. And it's outrageous. But, you know, from a statistical point of view, what you do is recode your variable. Instead of a zero and one, you code as one zero. So what it's done is turned a positively framed story into a negatively framed story, an absurdly negatively framed story, which then got lots of coverage because newspapers like negative frames. So that we, we can see this happening all the time. Now, you can use this to your advantage. What I'd like to show you now is a little bit of manipulation that I was actually part of. Um, I was part of the DEFRA group that were drawing up the um, way in which to communicate the uncertainties about future climate change. And sadly, Lenny Smith can't be here tonight because I think you'd like this stuff. I'll talk to him about this. Um, th th this was the um, maps produced by DEFRA of the 10% the median 50% and the 90% probability points, this is the top end, that's the bottom end, that's the middle, for temperature of the warmest day of the summer by the 2080s under the medium emissions scenario. Medium emissions mean essentially we, you know, we just carry on very much as we are at the moment. And this shows that the, the, you know, uh, about 2 to 4 degrees increase is the expected value roughly. It could be you know, the low 10% value is almost hardly change at all, if not go down. But the top end is all 10 to 12 degrees, 90% point. Now, traditionally, what's happened with these sorts of maps is that they've turned into climate porn. That people have fixated on something like that and say, temperatures could be as high as 10 degrees and 12 degrees, and that's what's gone on the front page. Could be a 12-degree rise in, in temperature. Climate porn. Now, fortunately, DEFRA thought beyond, it, beyond that, and instead of saying the temperatures could be as high as 12 degrees, it was worded as very unlikely to be greater than 10 degrees. Exactly the same information, numerical information. The impact was a complete change in the coverage. This was not covered because of this statement, very unlikely to be greater than. It changed a negatively framed message to a positively framed message and, and changed the whole impression that you get from that 90% point. So numbers do not speak for themselves. Confidence intervals, prediction intervals do not speak for themselves. The very language you use to describe them changes the impact, changes the impression, changes the media coverage. So there's some really important stories there. You cannot just produce numbers. You have to think about how they're packaged up. Okay, so, um, yeah, okay. So let's look at, at risks in general and how, how people feel about them. And I've shown how your feelings, in a sense, can be manipulated by the presentation. Let's see about, I would like to know how people feel about something. I'm going to do a little bit of informal voting. I came here on a Boris bike from King's Cross Station, just parked it by. Now, that, that's a Boris bike. That is not actually me. 
Um, but there is one way in which that does resemble me, is that in that I didn't wear a helmet when I came down. Yeah, now, what's the reaction there to, from people? Last time I admitted that, people said, mmm, and it booed me. So I'd like to ask how people feel about... My God, what a picture. I haven't really looked at it before. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, too so I mean, I'm sorry about putting pictures like this up. In Never mind. Um, I would like to know your immediate system one gut reaction, non-thinking, non-rational, boof, immediate reaction to the things, the things I'm going to put up. And could you just go, if you don't like them, or hooray, if you do like them. If you think, if you think they're warm and cuddly and nice, you take hooray. If you think they're go boo. All right, okay. So then we go, bicycle helmets. Sorry, I don't like bicycle helmets. Okay, okay um, fracking. Ah, oh, I've got a mix there. <laughs> now try to be more distinctive. No. Bit up if you're hey, and boom if you go boo, so we can hear it a bit better. Right, okay, um, nuclear power. Okay, um, GMOs. Yeah. Now, is that, okay, let me say GMOs with regard to safety. Okay. GMO, GMOs with regard to governance and, and industry role. Yeah, okay, right. All right, um, breast screening. Hey, yeah, okay. Let me just see, uh, what's this known as the aff affect heuristic? This is a really powerful thing, really developed by Slovak and Fischoff rather than so much than Kahneman, it's in Kahneman's book. This is the affect heuristic, is the fact that we hear something and we go, Whoo! one way or another. We either like it or we don't. We either think it's, our response is dominated by immediate ro emotional reaction. Either something is nice and soft and cuddly, or, it's some, or we, we have an aversion to it, we don't like it. And this is how we tend to respond to it all these sort of th slightly phenomena with which people have a dispute about. And what it means is that we tend to see things either nice or nasty. And if we see them as nice, we tend to play up, I mean, this is completely sensible, you know, you know nothing remarkable about this, we play up the benefits and minimise the harms. And if we see it as nasty, we, we play down the benefits and exaggerate the harms. And this is how we respond to things. And we tend not really to listen to the evidence very much, and there's all of us, not just um, stupid people, um, you know, we all do this, and we find it very difficult to weigh things up in, the, in, a, in, a, in a system two sort of way. There are ways that have been shown that enable people to better move from system one to system two, to try to battle this a little bit. Because frankly, if we are going to make decisions about our own lives, and particularly if politicians are going to make decisions about policy, well, we hope they're not just going to be governed by their affect heuristic, but they're actually going to try to weigh things up a bit. Okay, so let me talk about breast screening, which everyone will generally go, hooray! Let me see if I can change your perceptions a bit about breast screening. I, I, you know, I'm not against breast screening, but by presenting information in a different way, we might be able to change your perceptions a little bit. Now, breast screening is quite controversial, scientifically controversial, in fact, medically controversial. Many doctors will not go for breast screening, for example. So it, 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 is, not, it is not a universally, you know, seen as a universal benefit. And uh, th there was so much controversy about the advice women be being given that last year, yeah, 2012, the, the Lancet published an independent review of the benefits and harms of breast cancer screening. I knew some of the people on the working party that produced this, that one of the main qualifications of being in the working party is that you knew nothing about breast screening. So, you know, my colleague got phoned up and said, oh, we'd like you to be on this panel, and he said, I know nothing about breast screening. Said, oh, splendid, splendid, just the chap we need. Uh, because everybody who worked in breast screening was either on one side or another. 
is a, is a complete, made climate change look like, you know, a gang of cuddly people who all love each other. I mean, this was, breast screening is a really controversial area. And they came up with some estimates of what the benefits and harms of breast screening were, and they've now been put into the new leaflet that just came out a few weeks ago, and I was on the panel that drew up the new breast cancer screening leaflet. It's going out to millions of women um, um, about, uh, advising them about breast screening. Now, th this is, has anyone had this yet? Any, any women have had this? No, okay. You will if you're of a certain age, and um, you'll get this through your letterbox. Um, you'll get a letter, you'll, with it you'll get a letter offering you an appointment. The leaflet is to do with consider the offer. The leaflet presents the pros and cons of breast screening. It does not recommend that you go for breast screening. I think this is the first time anywhere in the world that, that a leaflet about a public health intervention like this has not recommended that you take it. It, it, it says, consider the offer, but here's the harms, possible harms, these are the benefits. We're not going to tell you that this is the best thing for you. Really, you know, this is a big experiment, what, what effect it might have on people. Okay, so I was on the group that actually presented some of this evidence to a citizen's jury, just, just very close to here. We presented the evidence, showed it all in different ways. People said what they liked, what they didn't like. And had a, this citizens and jury had a really big influence on the design of the leaflet. Fantastic, you know, really interesting um, process for developing public information. You know, very, very participatory um, method of doing it. These are the kind of things that we showed to the women on the, patient, on the um, citizens jury. Um, 200, this is the estimate that the panel, the, the expert panel made. 200 women between 50 and 70 who are not screened. What will happen to them? Well, about, over that period, about 185 will not get breast cancer, but about 15 will develop breast cancer, sadly. Now, of those, if they don't go for screening, um, there are eight of them, it'll be treated, it'll be found, uh, when it's clinically obvious, and it'll be treated, and they'll survive. But sadly, four will die early from their breast cancer. Three of them will never know they had breast cancer. It'll be subclinical, and they will, they will have it, but they won't die of it. They won't even know they've got it. They won't have any clinical problem with it. They'll just live with it, just as so many of us are living with disease already. There's a, more than a 50% chance I've got prostate cancer at the moment, someone, for example, my, my age. But, you know, most men die with prostate cancer. Uh, some die of it, sadly, but most men die with it. So... Okay, let's compare with that 200 women who go for screening over the same period. The same number get breast cancer because screening doesn't prevent breast cancer, unlike cervix cancer screening and bowel cancer screening, which do actually prevent the disease. So 15 develop the breast cancer, but because they go for screening, they're all going to be found. 12 of them will be treated and survive, and sadly, 3 will still die early from breast cancer. So amazing, very good survival, you know, treatment rate. You know, this is really a um, big improvement in women's chances. But look at the difference between the two. What's the real contrast? In this arm, you've got three people who are unaffected, so there's three fewer treatments, but there's one extra early death. In this arm, you've got three more treatments and one fewer death. So there's the trade-off. You've got 200 women going for screening over this period, you'll get three unnecessary treatments. There's the harm, and the benefit is prevention of world early death. What do you think of those odds? Do you want to go for the screening? So that's the, the fact, that's, that's the information that women are being presented with at now. Um, there's other ways to graphically show it. Um, that actually doesn't come over on the screen very well, but this is, again, the same information, 200 women going for screening, 200 women not going for screening, there's the 12 who get treated, there's the 15 who get treated, so those are the extra ones being treated, and there's the extra death. That's the trade-off, the three against the one. Now, these graphics, um, uh, using, particularly using icon arrays and what's called frequency trees, that's an icon array, that's a frequency tree, um, have been shown in multiple experiments to be probably the best way to explain 
chances and risks to individuals. You don't use probability, even avoid percentages, although there's some argument about that, um, to show what happens to 100 people or 200 people and uh, maybe even draw them out like that. Um, the women in the citizens' jury really liked them. I, I was a bit grumpy. I was very grumpy. In fact, the final version of the leaflet, they got taken out of the leaflet because it was tested on some people who said, oh, we don't understand that, we don't understand that. And it was weird. You know, about half the panel thought it should have stayed in and in a special bit of the back of the leaflet for those who really want to know the information. It's what I, I'm sorry, I'm slightly diver diverging here, but it's something I feel quite strongly about is that at the moment, patient information leaflets are written, you know, written for people with a reading age of 11 and I think a numeracy less than that, if anything. And, um, and it's been also been shown that people with a low numeracy are the people who don't read the leaflet, don't take any notice of the leaflets. So the leaflets are designed for people who don't want to read the leaflet. There's a, a central paradox there, it's called a, a numeracy paradox, the people who would like to use the information don't get it because it's been dumbed down for other people, to, to put a coin of phrase. Um, so I think it's very unfortunate. You get leaflets in lots of different languages, you only get them for one level of numeracy. You can put the stuff on, a, this will be on the website, um, I think the leaflet should come with a, a sort of slot in, a, a last two pages of extra information for people who really want it. Um, and you know, don't read this unless you really want to see it. So I think it's a real shame. How, okay, end of my little propaganda there. Um, so how can I frame, but I could frame this information in a way that would actually make breast screening I think, seem rather unattractive. Many people, this is a very popular advertising technique for screening, say, oh, screening saved my life. Um, I went for breast screening, it found this breast cancer, I'm treated and now I'm alive. Screening, screening saved my life. Okay, well let's look at this data and share it in a different way. Let's look at survivors of breast cancer found at screening. How many owe their lives to the screening? Now remember, for 200 women going screening, 12 were treated and survived. Of those, 8 would have survived anyway, if they hadn't gone for screening. 3 would never have had, had been treated, and 1 owes her life to screening. That's 1 out of 12. That means 92% of people who think that their lives have been saved by screening are actually wrong. They would have been alive anyway. So, when you put in that way, that sort of framing of the issue, screening perhaps doesn't seem quite as, quite as wonderful. Okay, so we can frame things all over the place. You know, radiation. People are terrified of radiation. You know, go on about Fukushima and things like that. Fortunately, in this country, we do know we're building a new, new, new nuclear power station. We've had a very much more rational, considered response, as opposed to Germany, with complete hysteria about, about nuclear power. This is the chart I like, produced by the, um, uh, the US uh, National Academy of Sciences, which showed that if you, you know, people have, you know, go on about Fukushima and then they go along and have a CAT scan because, you know, to check them out. Well, if you have a CAT scan, it's actually equivalent to standing two, you know, um, two and a half kilometers from Hiroshima when the bomb went off. That's the radiation exposure you get from a CAT scan. And this is really quite frightening. A chest x-ray, oh, that's two miles away. So that's two miles from Hiroshima that you're standing whenever you have a chest x-ray. So, um, you know, this just puts things in perspective that, you know, this radiation that we choose to be exposed to is maybe not such a, you know, might not be such a wonderful thing. Um, CT scan, yeah, there are 75 million CT scans in the US in 2007. It's been estimated they will cause 29,000 cancers. And people get obsessed about seawater outside Fukushima. So, it, we just frame this in a different way. I mean, the, the, a very good article, I haven't got a copy, has, has said that you should think of radiation, you know, uh, radiation in, in um, you know, water coming out of Fukushima. Think of it like chlorine. 
Think of it like chlorine. Chlorine is poisonous if it's, you know, dense enough. But we also put it in swimming pools. You know, this is, if, it's, if it's dilute enough, it's not going to do us any harm. Um, so, you know, we need to, the mindset around radiation, because radiation go, the fact heuristic, it can be really dangerous in our interpretation of information. So we can see that as the, the health risk in Fukushima, this is an interesting one, and the, the WHO did a report of what the health impacts were, which concluded that the major health impact of Fukushima was the fact that all these people had been evacuated. Their mental health, their physical health, their distress, everything has been the, the big impact of Fukushima is the evacuation, not radiation, which are almost immeasurable, the, um, the impacts. So WHO, low health risks. Wall Street Journal, which is a, you know, a Murdoch newspaper, tiny cancer risk after Japan. You know, can imagine the English newspaper saying tiny cancer risk. You know, and sadly, of course, they didn't. Even the bloody Guardian picked on the one big number in this big report. They found one number. 70% higher. This is in thyroid cancer in a particular group of women, a particular area for a very rare cancer. An excess risk estimated never be actually be observable. The numbers would be too small to check this. And they pick on that one number and stick it in the headline. Outrageous reporting, completely against the, um, what the report was actually saying. So again, the packaging, not what we, we shouldn't think about. We shouldn't read what we see. We should think about why are we hearing about it and what are we not seeing. It's the crucial issue. Okay, what about risk, taking risks? The, the packaging of information about chronic risks. I've done radiation a bit. What about this sort of stuff? Um, when you see in a menu like that, okay, what's your affect on that? You go, great, yes, great, good. Who goes, oh, horrible, worthy lot. Yeah, no, no, no. No, I think yum, yum, great. A burger and batter, one pound, ten pence. That's my favorite chip shop. Okay, I love this stuff. Um, now, this stuff is not going to kill you on the spot unless you choke on your burger in that <laughs> But frankly, a diet of this is not going to do you a lot of good in the long run. But how can we quantify that? Well, it, typically in the news, it's always going to be in terms of relative risks, just as The Guardian did. So it's going to say things like, you know, the Daily Express, daily fry up boosts the cancer risk by 20%. It's the framing issue again. The 20% increase is known, relative risks communicate um, uh, an, a bigger effect than other ways of communicating risk. What this is, is a chance of pancreatic cancer increased by a fifth from a daily bacon sandwich. Now, pancreatic cancer is a horrible cancer, very nasty, but fortunately, only if you go onto the CRUK website, only, only 1 in 80 people get it during their lifetime. So, what we're talking about is a 20% increase over 1 in 80. Now, those calculations are really quite tricky to do. We're trying to get them into the school syllabus now, both the GCSE and in this core math syllabus, that kids should be able to do this sort of thing in order to interpret these stories. And the way that it's generally taught how to do it is not to use the one-in language or the 20% language, but to talk about natural frequencies, to think about out of 400 people, just like the breast cancer tree. You think in terms of numbers of people. What would expect to happen to 400 people, like you lot, eating some smug, muesli and fruit disgusting breakfast every morning? 400, sadly, even you lot, five will get pancreatic cancer. Very sadly, that's the way it goes. Now, what about 400 other people every morning come down and stuff their face with this you know, great big greasy bacon sandwich every day of their lives? Can you imagine it? That's the effect. Sorry, did you notice that? that that's the effect. Now, that's all of these people eating that every day of their lives. There's one extra case. And, of course, that won't even happen because if you eat that every day, you'll die of something else first. 
before you get to pancreatic cancer. It'll kill you first anyway. It could even reduce the rate of pancreatic cancer. <laughs> Yeah, we could save a lot of, we could reduce cancer, you know, just eat that, come on. Yeah, and smoke as well, because then you won't, die of a, you, won't, you won't die of lots of things, you'll die of something. Yeah. So, um, we produced a risk calculator for cardiovascular risk, and it produces, one of the things it produces is lifetime risk, chance of getting cardiovascular risk. And then we put in the thing, what if this person starts smoking and their lifetime risk goes down? And of course it's logical, because they'll die of something else. So it's lifetime risk is a very misleading number. Anyway, okay, so um, that's the way to communicate this. Maybe this isn't such an important thing. Um, so there's relative risks are the very, shown again and again, to be a really bad way to communicate risk, is the, that framing. Very common in newspapers to exaggerate stuff. Um, so here we got, you know, this is another one, eating meat. I'm actually working on a Horizon program on the health effects of meat eating and vegetarianism at the moment. And one of the things is trying to communicate, how should you communicate this sort of stuff? Daily Express says things like, if people cut down the amount of red meat they eat to less than half a serving a day, 10% of all deaths could be avoided. Whoa. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, isn't statistics wonderful? I mean, <laughs> it's a great subject, isn't it? 10% of all deaths could be avoided. I mean, it's just nonsense. And this, you get this drivel. Every time there's a story like this, this rubbish is trotted out. You know, you can prevent all these deaths. No, you can't prevent deaths. Someone's going to die in the end. We're all going to die. Okay, what I'd like to suggest is an alternative metaphor. The whole Kahneman work about framing has, has shown that it's impossible, actually, to have a valueless frame. You can try all sorts of things. These icon arrays are shown to be extremely good. What, however you do it, the, the choice of colour has an effect. Everything has an effect. So I said, well, let's just admit it and tell stories and just try to tell stories that, are, that are, we feel are not too biased. But so I'm turn, turning it into a storyteller using use of metaphor. And the metaphor I like this is the speed of aging. If you have a bad lifestyle, you get older quicker. It's been shown to be quite a powerful one to work on people psychologically. So let me show you how that works. This is, um, this is what's called a hazard curve, also known as the force of mortality. So this is, each of these numbers is the chance of you dying before your next birthday. This is men in Britain 2006, but it hasn't changed that. It's come down a little bit. So this is the chance. It's interesting. It's amazing. Being seven years old, there's a one in 10,000 chance, on average, of not making your eighth birthday. That's the safest anyone has ever been, ever, anywhere in the whole history of mankind. There's been to be seven years old at the moment in this country. Amazing, isn't it? It drops down. There's still a very low mortality even the first years of life. drops down. Then it starts inexorably, I can't say that word, going up. And if you notice, get your eye down here, it's a dead straight line all the way to 95, except for this. Ah, we forget about this bit. Um, this is youth, I'm afraid. Um, and there's a particular jump at 17, etc. Youth finishes tails off at about 30, and then you just carry on the general decline and crumble. <laughs> just the crumblingness that we all face inevitably. Okay, so if we ignore youth, poor youth, it's a dead straight line, um, which is an interesting finding. Now, these are known as, this is the hazard, and epidemiologists, when they are looking at the effect of lifestyle, talk about the hazard ratio, which is how much this is pushed up by your habits. Every year, your risk of death goes up by a certain percent. So your hazard, that's your force of mortality, so I've got a, I'm 60 or so, my force of mortality is 1% per year at the moment, on average. Average was one in 100 chance I'll die before my next birthday. Um, for you lot, 
Well, you're all only about 15, aren't you? Anyway, let's, let's put you around here. It's less than one in a thousand. Okay. So, but we can in, you can increase this. And so, two hours watching television and being completely sedentary <laughs> on the sofa has a ratio 1.09. Puts 9% on your annual risk of death compared with if you, people who get up and walk around. Daily sausage, bacon, sandwich, about 10% on your annual risk. Five fruit and veg a day, fantastically. This is from the big EPIC study in Norfolk. You know, not, you know, about 34% reduction in annual risk of death compared with people who don't have a decent diet. Getting up and moving for the first 20 minutes, a fantastic effect, huge effect. Um, next 40 minutes, not such a big effect. So that's why the government advice is 20 minutes moderate activity a day. Once you've done that, you can do some more, but you needn't bother really. <laughs> Actually, no, it's good. If you enjoy it, do it. But don't do it because you're going to live forever. Um, being male, 50% extra risk of death every year. You know, just, 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 just being male. Not much you can do about that. So that's it. That's it. That's our penalty we have to pay for being male. Okay. Now, Gomputz was this brilliant guy. He lived till he was 86 for a start. And he observed in 1820s or so, he plotted the graph for 1820, which looked very much like this, just moved up quite a lot. You know, this is on a log scale, so it's a it's a doubling scale. He observed the straight line. He spotted that this was a straight line. It's called a Gompertz curve. This amazing thing. Now, what that means is that your annual risk of death increases by a fixed percentage every year. In fact, it goes up 9% per year. So every year, on average, your risk of dying for your next birthday goes up by 9%. Then 9%, 9%. And we know about you know, exponential. Anyone who studies sort of compound interest knows that is going to get you in the end. You, know, you can't carry on forever, not that. It's going to get you, and it does. And what that means, in fact, is that your annual risk of dying doubles every eight years. So from 25 to 33 to 41, 49, 57, every, every eight years your risk of dying for your next birthday doubles. Boom, boom, boom. It's like backgammon. It's going to get you in the end. Okay. So um, I then got an idea stolen from this wonderful paper called the, about rate advancement period. Can we translate the effect of you know, uh, drinking, smoking, exercising, sitting in the sofa to changing your effective age, how old you are? And we can, because that Gompert's observation says that the hazard ratio associated with being a year older is 1.09, which is about the same as eating a sausage every day. Eating a sausage every day puts a year on your age. It's equivalent, the risk extra of eating that sausage Sitting two hours in front of the television, one point of the hazard ratio is 1.09, one year extra on your age. And by simple sort of power thing, 1.09 to the t equals h, where t is the number of years and h is the hazard ratio observed in a study. If we solve that, we get t equals log h over log, log 1.09. So if an epidemiological study in the newspaper tells us this increases your annual risk by 1.2, you plug 1.2 in there, do that calculation, and it tells you how many extra years of, your, of age this is equivalent to. What is, the, what is what's it done to your effective age? It's, it's incredibly simple. And what it means is that we can take things like this. Two hours watching TV makes you a year older. Um, takes two years off your, off your age if you get up and move around a bit. And one year off that. Being male, four years older. I've, every male, essentially, on average, has got the same annual risk of death as a woman four years older than them. That's why women live four years older on average, longer than men. So there's this, con there's this we can translate any um, hazard ratio we can read in the paper into effective aging. So we, then we can calculate how old you really are. Ha -ha. Um, and how old is your body? Now, this is actually, if you, I don't know, has anyone seen these sites? 
The web is full of them. You type real age into Google. You get endless sites in which you do this sort of thing. You put in your habits and it tells you how old you really are. <laughs> so are you younger than you think? Test your real age test, your biological age. You can put that one in. Here's another one. How fast are you aging? Here's this you know, lady and she eats red meat and she gets stressed. So she adds, you've got seven years extra on her age. Now, I, I think they just make these numbers up. You know, they've probably got some formula for it, and it's probably pretty bad. But what I'm saying is that there is actually a math fairly mathematically rigorous way to produce these numbers. This is not an idiotic exercise at all. You can change your you can calculate someone's effective age. Now, what I'm doing is actually trying to use a lot of the principles that Kahneman has suggested. That one of the things is temporal discounting. If you just tell people that they're going to live a year or longer, people aren't very impressed because um, there's this lovely quote from Kingsley Amis saying, I'm not going to give anything up for the sake of another year in a geriatric home in Western Superman. <laughs> so, so you just tell people, oh, you can live a you can, you know, if you stop drinking, you can live a year longer. All they do is get an image of being another year, being old and dribbly. And who wants to do that? But if you tell them that they're making themselves older, they're aging faster because of their habit, it is shown to be effective. If you tell smokers the age of their lungs, it's very effective to get them to stop smoking. People now are constantly told, the calculator we do, we've got, tells you your heart age. How old is your heart? You know, you're 40, your heart's 50. Ah, not very good. Okay, so essentially though, if you do have a habit that's putting a year on your effective age, it is taking a year off your life on average. So the daily sausage or the bacon sandwich, I love sausages. I don't hardly eat red meat, but I love sausages. So my effect on sausages is, hey, sausage. Anyway, sausage, a sausage a day, processed meat is not good for you, and it's reckoned to take a year off your life if you have a sausage or a bacon, piece of 50 grams of bacon every day. Okay, so what's that doing? Um, you young people, if you're in your 20s, you've got about, you know, 60 years to live, roughly, at the moment. So 50, 55, 60 years. So, actually, losing a year off that life, if you're going to eat your daily sausage or sit in front of the computer, immobile, um, losing that year off your life is like losing about 50th of your life. Well, pro rata, that's like losing about uh, a week a year. Um, it's only about half an hour a day, which is the 48. So you could say that eating that sausage is taking a half an hour of your life every day. It's equivalent to half an hour of your life, pro rata. Now, I don't know what the actual effect of eating that one sausage is. You can't measure that. But as a habit, it's associated with an equivalent risk as if you were losing half an hour a day. Now, the nice thing is about this half an hour is that we can think about it Amazingly, for a young adult who's got 55 to 60 years to live, 57 years is exactly a million half hours. Not exactly, give or take, a million half hours. So you young people have got a million half hours to live. Imagine that. So um, since I started talking, there's one and a half of them gone. <laughs> so you've got 999,999. So Take a, you know, just enjoy them because they're ticking away all the time. Okay, but you can make them, you can, you can get a few more or you can lose them depending on your lifestyle. We call this a micro-life. Well, one, it's a millionth of your life. And you can lose micro-lives by your behaviour or gain them. So it turns out that on average, according to this, these habits I'm going to show have the equivalent essentially of aging you by a year, giving you the risk of someone one year older. Or roughly equivalent, another metaphor, taking half an hour of your life for every day you've got this habit. So both things. So eating the burger. So there we are, eating the burger. The drinks. Now the drinks is quite complicated because, um, actually I've had one already today. The first one each day uh, is associated with the benefit of a year on your life or half an hour a day. So it's medicine, the first one each day. 
is half an hour on the right, on the right section. Unfortunately, the second, third, fourth, and fifth, etc., take it off again steadily. So it goes medicine, poison, 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 poison. <laughs> Doesn't go medicine, poison, medicine, poison. That would be, that'd be, that'd be really stupid and quite miraculous. No, no, no. Medicine, poison, 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 poison. You know. And so you're quits by about three. Very roughly, you're quits by about three, which is the recommended intake. So, and after, after that, you're going, um, you're steadily going down. So if you actually stuff down about five or six, um, by the time you do that, you're definitely losing, losing half an hour some time. Um, two cigarettes. So if you, about 15 minutes pro rata for every, off your life for every cigarette you smoke. So 20 cigarettes, about five hours off your life, about, you know, about eight, nine years off your life, about five hours a day. So if you're smoking 20 a day, you're, instead of going towards your death at 24 hours, you're going at 29 hours. You're gasping at 29 hours a day. And other, this next one, um, those of you of a nervous disposition may want to look away now, um, because that, <laughs> unfortunately, is me. And um, five kilograms overweight is associated with about uh, a loss of a year of life, on average, half an hour a day. So um, the, the message from this that I got from a bottle of orange juice in Scandinavia, <laughs> live longer than your friends. Um, I was... <laughs> so, Strange thing to want to do, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> who are you going to talk to? <laughs> so, but if you do want to live longer, your friends, drink their orange juice. And it's true, it's, it's true the five fruit and vegetables. I mean, you, you do all this math and you end up with being exactly the same stuff that anyone would tell you just from common sense. So, um, so to conclude, finish my talk now, um, the system one and system two way of thinking. The first system one is this brain. Here's the brain. And it's to do with being rational, weighing things up, harms and benefits. We know there are good ways to try to communicate this to people. It's been experimentally um, verified using icon arrays, using frequency trees, etc., that we can communicate these things. However, there's also this other way of looking at things, using your guts, gut reactions, gut feelings. There's some guts cooking away. And um, which is our feelings and our intuition, our culture and our emotion are a fact for things. And I suppose my purpose of my talk, to answer my question, these are inseparable. We are human beings. We are a product of both of these. We cannot just work in this way. It would be horrific if we could. We also should not just work in this way, which is just ghastly, just completely just, just going by your feelings all the time. And we would hope that those, the great and the good, in charge of deciding on our futures and setting policy, are going to be a little bit more here than they are there, but even so, we have to take into account we're human beings. We cannot separate. And who would want to separate the two anyway? Who would want to be one or the other? So my feeling is, this is my synthesis. Yeah, what's the synthesis? Well, you know, you've got the brain up there and you've got the guts there. So in the middle is the heart. So that's what, where we should be making our decisions from. So thank you very much. Indeed. It's just water, it's just, just in case water. you were worrying yeah, yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David, thank you very much. That was extraordinarily entertaining and uh, <laughs> sometimes quite worrying presentation <laughs> as I was sitting there doing some of those calculations. We have plenty of time for questions. We have microphones around. So um, who would like to... At the front here. Perhaps you could in introduce yourself briefly and then fire away. Hello, my name's David. Um, I was just really thinking back to your saying two ways of thinking. 
And there's also an idea of an emotional way of thinking and a rational way. An example of this is where since you have three doors and you say a prize is behind one of these doors and you get a decision, the host gives you a decision to say which door would you choose and you basically, but you can change your mind halfway through. So you choose one door and then he takes one door away and says it's behind one of these two doors. Yeah. doors. Should, should you at that point consider to choose again or stick to your original decision? Yeah. And it's always to say you should always choose again because at that point your odds are basically in your favour to really make sure to really choose it. But it's still, it seems that you've still had, although it's less, less of a choice, the idea behind it is, is that really um, a benefit? Uh, since it seems so, um, the fact that you're going to choose the same door yeah. anyway. It's the problem with this, David was describing the Monty Hall problem, the classic thing when you've got three doors and there's a prize behind one and you point to one and he says, okay, he then opens, shows you one of the doors that you didn't choose that is empty and says, do you want to sh shift door? And you should, because it, you know, if he's obeying the, the appropriate rules, it doubles your chances of winning. Now, that, I mean, that's an example of uninsured, very unintuitive probability. I can, I can show different ways to make it more intuitive. I, a, I got a video on YouTube doing that, showing how to try to explain the, the intuition. But it's very difficult to do. And, I, I, and the other big probability one where our intuition is just it's impossible to get rid of it is the gambler's fallacy where you know you've got a completely random thing but it's come up heads three times in a row or tails is due something like that now i um, i'm very interested in gambling and you know completely professionally i have a William Hill online account and <laughs> go into you know, bookmakers to play on the fixed odds betting terminals which are unbelievably compulsive and dreadful things for society but wonderful fun. Sorry, I didn't say that. Um, and, but those machines, you start sticking the money in a quid at a time and uh, they're just roulette machines and red, black, red, black and things like that and I found myself changing my bet from red to black. Now, it's completely pointless. There's no point in changing my bet. It's exactly the same chances every time. But I couldn't stop myself thinking, oh, it's been red twice, must be black due now. Which is nonsense, but I know it's nonsense. <laughs> I teach it, for heaven's sakes, and I couldn't <laughs> stop myself doing it. These are really, really ingrained, difficult things. People are not good probability analyzers. They can be trained. Um, you know, Bayes' theorem and everything's been shown. People are very bad at it, very, find it very difficult to do. We can show you ways to do it to make it easier, and we're trying to get those into schools. But you can be trained, but you, it's very difficult. People do not take naturally to this stuff. Uh, so that's why I think probability and risk are some of the most interesting ones, because it's where you get this rationality and emotion just are bashing, boom, 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 bashing against each other. And in the end, you just have to admit they're both there, I think, and just try to recognise, you know, you know, this is what I'm feeling, but you know, I know I'm just being manipulated. It's really tricky. Yeah. Gentleman in the middle. Hello, um, my name's Jonathan. I actually coincidentally work for an online betting company, so perhaps we can have <laughs> oh, a right. chat after. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The question I have was to do with the breast screening yeah. and the positives and the negatives. Um, I couldn't actually see the downside of not having it. Is the downside the fact that there will be three people, I think you said, that would be treated that wouldn't have known and then therefore would have to go through the, the trauma of chemotherapy or whatever it is? Yeah. What, what's the <coughs> downside of having the, the, the screening anyway, notwithstanding the fact that it's going to save a life? 
Well, the, the downside is that these three women will have to... So that, the, the, yeah, the whole treatment, they'll, they'll, be, they'll be diagnosed with breast cancer, it's an unbelievably traumatic event, mm. they have to go through all the treatment, etc., etc. So, and that is, three of those will be completely unnecessary. That means three out of 15, so 20% of women being treated after screening is completely unnecessary. Okay. One in five of women being treated is for no purpose whatsoever. So, I mean, which is, you know, pretty substantial downside when you think about it. At the front here. Hi, um, my name is Simon. Um, I was wondering, uh, when you distribute these leaflets with medical information, etc., how do you go about deciding how complicated you're going to make them without oh. losing vital data? And how do, you, how do you decide what's the best way to presenting this information mm -hmm. in order to avoid heuristics and framing, exactly, etc.? Exactly. Well, what you do is have a committee of people who spend months arguing over every damn word. That's what you have. Uh, stuff full of psychologists. You know, very good people who work in behavioural psychology and social psychology, who know all the heuristic stuff, done all the experiments. So, you, with you know, great awareness of this and of the research showing that icon arrays, for example, go a very long way in countering some of these the, the framing effects because you you focus just as much on the people who are on one side as on the on the other. So. Um, it, yeah, that's really difficult. It's very difficult because, uh, especially on the committee, there were some people who were really gung-ho about screening and wanted to have, you know, everything be rosy, and there are others on the committee who actually weren't that, you know, who were very cautious about screening. So um, there was, you, the meetings were quite interesting, shall we say. But they got to it in the end, but after a long, every word being fought over, really. Is that really yeah, the, the, well, the, then we did bowel and we did cervix as well. The bowel one, the real problem there was what to call poo and things like that. So, you know, that, you know, that went on and on. So all the bodily parts and the functions, what language to use for that long discussion for that kind of stuff. And you just sit there, what, I'm sitting in this committee meeting, dis well, I wasn't discussing what to call poo. I, I'm not an expert on what to call poo, so that's not part of my expertise. But, you know, it was, it's a fascinating business and you know I think you know they've done a, a very good job and then they go out and test them on people they get feedback from from clients from, from, from women so it's a real process and it is you know increasingly a scientific process the design of these things it's still not I don't think it's still not rigorous enough and as I said the thing I really don't like is that they end up with one size fits all you know and I think that you know the web and things like that has shown us that um, people do want different representations, they want different de depths of explanation, and as it is, everyone gets the same thing, which, to be honest, if you're of reasonable intelligence, is a bit of a, is very patronising. Yeah. Again, in, in, in the middle here, and then I'll, I'll pick up some of this. Uh, David, Peter Hanley, uh, thank you very much for an entertaining uh, talk. <laughs> You're, I work in um, ports and logistics industry trying to do a um, change management program for safety, trying to get people um, engaged in it and just yeah, doing things yeah, differently. Yeah. Uh, what your talk has um, made me think of is that in that industry we use a term of risk, which is the compound, as you know, of frequency yeah. times uh, severity. You end up with you know, a figure out of that. You've been talking today, I think, of risk as a probability, you know, perhaps as just the number. How do we 
how does that affect people? Is that being yeah, looked at? Yeah. No, I mean, it's very good because I don't try to define risk. You know, everyone uses it. There's, you know, 103 different definitions for it. So do you take into account severity? And also, I, I don't consider risk as being necessarily bad either. That there's anything where you don't know what's going to happen. It's got a possible consequence. There's some uncertainty about it. So not even with probability. So I tend to use it as being a statistician as the probability and the consequence is then part of the context, whether it's a dread outcome such as cancer or something completely trivial. So it's sort of very implicit. So I don't think, well, you know, I don't even bother to define it. I don't think it's a point because someone else will have a very different definition in their area. So, but consequences obviously are, important, are absolutely vital. And, um, but, you know, I, just as in a risk matrix you separate out you know, the chance of something happening from the severity, you know, I think you, you should not be putting them together until the very last minute because people do feel very strongly about uh, there is a difference between, you know, expected number of deaths is this, um, you know, one in a million chance of it happening over a million people or is it this person <laughs> who's going to die? You know, people feel really strongly about it. There's still the same number of deaths, but they, they feel very strongly about it, indifferently about it. So I think that... Um, you know, I like to try to keep the distribution and the consequences separate issues as long as, long as you possibly can. Yeah. But I think that's the health, I haven't talked about health and safety, you know, health and safety stuff is absolutely riveting and I'm, you know, I'm, I would like to get more, starting start to get more involved in that because there again is an, you know, an issue where just like all of the rest of life, things have got so much safer, you know, life's got safer, safer, safe. You know, um, how far do you go? You know, how do you motivate people to continue to um, take precautions and things like that? Question in the middle there, and then I'll take yeah. the ones. Hello, um, my name's Craig. I'm, uh, I'm a cyclist. And, <laughs> um, I'm quite wearing? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, I'm, I'm, I'm quite interested in your analysis of risks around cycle helmets. Yeah. I, I don't want to, I mean, it's terribly controversial. That's why I always say I'm never going to speak about cycle helmets. And you do need to really strongly distinguish about the individual choice of wearing one. And I'm not going to tell anyone what to do. I couldn't care less what anyone does. And the idea is the cycle helmet policies, in particular encouragement or even mandatory cycle helmets. So these are very different issues. On the mandatory cycle helmet thing, I, you know, I did a recent paper in the BMJ with Ben Goldacre reviewing some recent studies in Canada which showed that states that have brought in mandatory cycle helmets and those that haven't have had identical declines in cycle injuries. The point being that cycle you know, injuries, which have declined you know, in, in developed countries you know, very much so over the last few years, the major impact has not been because of cycle helmets, because of proper you know, uh, provision of cyclists in terms of cycle lanes, of getting more people cycling, you know, the, um, and et cetera, et cetera. And that's what I feel is absolutely crucial. In Australia, where mandatory cycle helmets is an you know, unbelievably controversial and political issue, the complaint there is that it's really distracted attention from what are actually much more important issues about cycling safety to do with putting in proper facilities for cyclists. And, you know, for example, and I always use the ideas, you know, as people do with comparing Holland and Denmark, for example, where everyone cycles, no one wears a helmet at all, and it's very safe cycling. From an individual perspective, um, I, I, I don't like them. You know, I've just got an effect. I don't like them. I wear a helmet when I'm skiing. You know, I, I, wear, I do have wear a cycle helmet. And that's partly because I'm a poodle. What sort of cyclist I am? I'm a poodler. A Boris bike suits me fine because I just go along. <laughs> I stop at red lights. I keep out of the way of trucks. I'm very cautious. 
I'm like one of those. Now, most people in London are absolutely bloody maniacs when they cycle. They shouldn't just wear helmets, they should wear full body armour because they're complete nutcases. Sorry, what sort of cyclist are you? <laughs> in other words, there are two types of cyclists, roughly. There's poodlers who enjoy the weather, and there's cyclists who treat it as an objective every day to get to where they're going as very fast as they possibly can. Now, those sorts of people should wear helmets. In fact, they should wear full body. What, what are you? <laughs> okay, who, who, okay in the, who's a cyclist? Who's a pootler cyclist? Okay, who is a racer cyclist? Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> Lots of them about. So, so the point is that cycling is something with very different styles of cycling. When you're driving, everyone drives in roughly the same way, particularly in the city. There's no way, you, you've got to all drive the same way. People can cycle in very different ways and expose themselves to very different risks. So I think cycling helmet, as an individual point of view, should be an individual choice, depending on your style. Um, from a, a policy point of view, I'm very much against um, cycle helmets being mandatory or even being strongly encouraged. Um, the the health, public health returns from cycling are massive. Recent calculations show between 10 and 20 times the public health benefit from cycling, people getting off their backside, compared with the risk of actually cycling. So anything that can promote cycling is a good thing. And anything that um, takes, you know, uh, might stop people cycling. If I had to wear a helmet, I wouldn't have ridden the bike from King's Cross. So, anyway. Fantastic. Gentlemen over there on the far side. Thank you, David, um, for the um, cycling. As a cyclist who used to live in Holland, I agree with your position. Um, qu question again about the breast uh, screening pamphlet. Very interesting. I guess one question I want to ask is, what about the risk, which was not clear from the uh, description of the uh, 200 and yeah. the 185, et cetera. It seems like what you're saying is that uh, a few people, three or four, who have breast cancer, either detected or not detected, depending on whether they screen or not, but it really doesn't make a difference in their lives, yeah. so whether they get treatment or not, it, they still live. Or they, they'll, they'll die with it, but not of it. Yeah. Um, but what about those who screen and get a false positive? Mm. And, and of course, which yeah. is, it was not in your chart, but I, in, I presume a certain number of people exactly. go through a, a, a ridiculously wasted... Yeah, uh, no, it's not in the chart, it's in the leaflet. Because a, a, a substantial proportion, I mean, up to 40% of those 200 women over the 20 years will get a, po a false positive um, mammography, be recalled, possibly have a biopsy, possibly have further investigations. So th that's not in, that's a, in the leaflet in a separate part of it. There's also the, you know, the harm in, which is much smaller, but is there of, from the radiation of getting the mammography, um, which is measurable in terms of numbers. You know, a number of cancers each year will be caused in the people being given these mammographies. Um, it's, not, you know, it's not that many. So those are other aspects as well. This is only looking at one aspect of that. So, but those, those harms are in the leaflet as well. Um, again, quite a, a lot of discussion about the prominence that should be given to those and the language being used. Even the word to use harm, you know, to use risk, what, what language is used, was a lot of discussion about that. To try to get a, in the end, it's trying to get a balanced point of view. Very difficult. It's the woman at the very back. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> um, good evening. Hi. My name is Victory. I'm actually a third year actuarial science student here. And in your model, you've basically talked about using different terminology yeah. about the speeding, speed of aging. But how have you taken into account how um, the public will view that will change with time? Because it's quite static. 
If you say, oh, tell people speed of aging, maybe 10 years' time, people have gotten used to that, interpreted it differently. Uh, yeah. How would you have liked Yeah, no, that's a very good point. That's a very good point because in the end, I'm talking about almost advertising, you know, a language, and that people will get used to things. Mm -hmm. No, maybe you have to change the metaphor. Maybe, maybe you can change the metaphor. The idea of the speed of aging is that there is an evidence base for it because, because we know that telling people the life expectancy thing People don't take so much notice of things at the end of their lives. That's not such an important one. And we know from randomized trials of lung age, you know, where people use their lung age, that it has helped people stop smoking. As you say, when people get used to it, maybe, yeah, they'll stop being, you know, maybe there's some novelty value about this sort of metaphor. Yeah. But then but then if um, people get used to it, could you use that to kind of help with health education as well? Yeah, well, I think so. I mean, the, the, um, you know, as I said, I'm working on this Horizon program on the effect of eating meat at the moment. And Michael, Michael Mosley will be presenting it. And they're, they're, you know, they seem to like this idea that we communicate the effects of eating processed meat or being vegetarian in terms of what it effectively does to your age. Where it gives you the risks of someone older or, or younger. Actually, we've invented a new term um, called your gut age because it's all about you know, bowel cancer and things like that. So how old are your guts? Imagine that. What a disgusting thought. Anyway, so the point is that you know, heavy meat eaters are giving themselves five-year-older guts in terms of the risks associated with gut diseases. Okay, and then does your model change of um, the various um, differences in like London? So like, people in London live differently to people in North East England, blah, blah, blah. So things like that, does your like, idea change of how you should express, express yourself change with the different subgroups of culture? Oh, yeah. Well, that, I, that's I, the last point. Well, yeah, the, the, the point is, though, that really um, you're getting in the whole area of behaviour change, trying to influence people's behaviour. I, I couldn't care less about it. I couldn't care less whether people eat, smoke, drink, whatever. It's not my concern whatsoever. I don't want to tell anyone what to do. Although I am on the, uh, one of the PIs in the Behaviour and Health Research Unit at Cambridge, which explicitly is trying to research behaviour change and influences on behaviour change. Um, the, the general message usually is that telling people all these stories about the risks has very little effect on their general behaviour. And certainly the team I work with are much fonder of really, you know, I suppose more of a nudge mentality, uh, um, changing what they call changing the choice architecture, changing the environment, the physical environment, to make it easier to do the right thing. So they're really population in interventions rather than going around each person one at a time, wagging your finger at them, telling them they're, they're doing this, that and the other. So, in fact, the stuff I'm doing, although I'm, I like doing it, I'm not actually it's, it, uh, expecting it to have an effect necessarily on people's behaviour. And that's not the measure of it. I'm not doing this to change people's behaviour. I would like it <coughs> so that people understand the consequences of their behaviour, but if they want to carry on, I couldn't care less. <laughs> Gentlemen, there. And then two questions. Hi, Go ahead. My name's Alistair. Um, we know that sort of stress is very unhealthy or yeah, yeah. it's generally bad. Yeah. But people seem to have a very different uh, toleration of risk which causes stress for a lot of people. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, or have, is that always are, the, the stress one is really interesting because there's in a very good literature, particularly, um, I mean, the, the work by Michael Marmot on the sort of status syndrome suggests that stress, it's a combination of stress and lack of control in your life that is really harmful to your health. So if you're actually in charge of something 
and you know a, a pretty re you can deal with a, a, you know really a lot of stress and it can actually be very life affirming and beneficial is when you're not in control of how you're doing and yet people are keeping on asking you to do more and more and forcing you I mean it can be really damaging to your to your health and so it's quite, you know stress is a very complex issue and it's again it's one of those it's a bit like alcohol you know a certain amount will be beneficial and sunlight um, a certain amount can be beneficial and then it's tails off and then it starts being harmful. So, you know, it's a complex pattern in, in, in stress, um, indeed. And as you said, all of this stuff, of course, will have interactions with personality. These are all just averages and stuff like that. But unemployment, for example, you can translate unemployment into how many years, essentially, it puts on your effective age. Because the, the um, hazard, there's, you know, big, I can't remember what it is, but, you know, a reasonable hazard ratio associated with being unemployed. Well, I'm not. Um, my name is Roman Frick. I work in philosophy here at DLSE. Um, I want to come back to the UK CP case that you, you had their, their, their probability diagram up and you praised them for the handling of the low probability cases. This leaves the question open, however, whether these probabilities make any sense at all. And you mentioned Lenny Smith, and obviously those who know Lenny know what he would say. He yeah, would point out these, yeah, these probabilities are not only useless, they're actually yeah. less than useless, they're seriously misleading. Yeah. So the question to you yeah. is where you stand on this, and uh, do you think these probabilities make sense, or would there yeah, be a better way of communicating climate risk yeah. in such a context? Exactly. That's a really important point. The point is those maps I put up, the 10%, 50%, and 90%. I mentioned Lenny Smith, and he would just say, I, I, I don't believe these. You know, I don't, don't believe this assessment because you know, producing a probability distribution over these possible futures in this, you know, is so dependent on the particular climate models you're using and your assumptions and things like that, that actually we don't believe those numbers. And I, I, I didn't talk about it, but partly because I, I don't want to get into that, to be honest. To be completely <laughs> honest, I do not want to talk about it because it's not my area of expertise. The medical data, I'm very happy to talk about the quality of the numbers. Um, the breast cancer numbers, I think I believe reasonably well. But there's a lot of uncertainty about those. And these food numbers, again, a lot of uncertainty. These are really quite rough numbers. The, but the climate ones, because it's really quite, you know, it's, it's, it's a political issue, um, the claim that you have characterised the uncertainty is really quite strong. And uh, they would say, because they wouldn't claim that they had, because if you read the details, they produce a great long list of things that haven't gone into the models. You know, that these are based on you know, very strong assumptions. Um, these are... The, the only way I, I wouldn't try to justify what they've done particularly, except to say that any probability assessment is contingent. There's no such thing as unconditional probability. So I'm a, I'm a subjectivist Bayesian, by the way, if we want to get into these, <laughs> these issues. Um, I'm a die-hard, absolutely hard-line subjectivist Bayesian, and this probability doesn't exist. That's what I believe. All probabilities are invented. They're constructed on the basis of available knowledge. And, that, um, and so they're all contingent. So any probability should come with a whole lot of things that says how you constructed them which they do to give them some benefit, but when it's communicated, of course, that's not what comes out. It just says this is the 90% chance, because it's not the 90% chance. It's based on their, all their assumptions. So, I, as I said, I don't want to get into the details of that. And I must say, I'm not sure I would use those. The crucial thing, being a subjectivist Bayesian, is would you use those to put bets on? You know, would William Hill you know, use those in the, in, in the betting? Um, and would I, would I accept odds of 9 to 1 again on those things? Um, and I'm not sure I would. 
I'm Rhino Sauerborn, and thank you very much for a wonderfully inspiring lecture. Um, I wanted to come back and learn a little bit more about the concept of temporal discounting, which oh, yeah. you mentioned uh, yeah. a little bit uh, in passing. Isn't it that uh, everybody in this room and in the world has a different rate of uh, temporal discounting, whether you have previous experience, whether you're old, whether you're young, yeah, whether you're yeah, rich, yeah. whether you're poor, whether you live yeah. in Africa, and whether you live in the UK. Yeah. And do you, is that so? And oh. if so, do you tailor your message to the various groups because no, people well, care more or less about the future? Yeah, exactly. Well, temporal discounting is essentially how much do you care about the future, particularly the end of your life, from a personal point of view. Because it comes into, you know, planning for climate change and things like that. You know, how much do we temporarily discount? And, uh, you know, the future generations and disposal of nuclear waste, it becomes particularly important because we, we only put a little bit of discount rate in. We couldn't care less about future generations. We just leave the stuff sitting around in buckets. But we don't, so we must have, you know, we, in that sense, we have a very low temporal discounting rate. Um, is it, but, you know, it varies between people, and it, people are completely incoherent about this. There's all this hyperbolic discounting things. That people have got all sorts of, people, this is not, temporal discounting is not a consistent pattern of psychology at all. And that's why um, when, uh, you know, it's used politically, for example, in nice appraisals, when they're making judgments about paying for treatments, it's 3.5% per year, and that's what, how we it's just assumed, you know, as a societal figure, that all health benefits are discounted at 3.5%, which actually means 20, uh, a year and 20 years' time is only worth about half what a year is now, and a year and 40 years' time is hardly worth anything at all. Um, it, benefits, it benefits old people a lot. If they didn't, if they had a lower discount rate, we'd shoot everybody over 70. Yeah. It'd be much cheaper that way. <laughs> <laughs> Gentleman in the middle at the back. Thank you. Um, are genetics a bit of a loaded dice in all this calculation? Well, yeah. I mean, the point, I think genetics is a really interesting example because that shows that none of these probabilities or risks are put up are actually the probabilities for any individual because there's so much other information that can affect your, my future that we just don't know about. Maybe, you know, I'm certain to get a heart attack by something. Maybe I'm carrying some genes, I don't know. So that it shows these probabilities, anything, anytime we use a probability, again, is contingent and on very limited bits of information. We know it isn't the probability, it's not my probability. You know, I've got a, you, you put my details in the computer program and it says I've got about a 12, 13% chance of a heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years. That's actually a one in a million chance I'm going to have it in the next hour. Um, so I hope there's some doctors around. <laughs> so, uh, but it's not my probability. You know, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. I don't know. So you know, and maybe it, with more information, I could change that probability. So these probabilities do not exist. Yeah. Well, they do want to. They do want to. Yeah, yeah, because it can change the probabilities quite dramatically. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and you need that to really to interpret you know, any symptoms you've got. Depending, so if you go, you know, with some, you know, if you go along with some, you know, bladder problem or something like that, you know, if somebody then suddenly, oh yeah, my brother and my father had prostate cancer, well, they're going to interpret it completely differently from, from that, and quite rightly too, because it changes the prior probability. So this is all, the genes are really important. Probably not as important as they've been made out to be, to be honest. But, um, because these magic, you know, frankly, over the last 10 years, 
they haven't taught us that much. Not as much as was hoped 10 years ago. Luke. Uh, yeah, Luke Bovens from LSE Philosophy. Um, I'm, I'm wondering actually when we're talking about the alcohol story and the meat eating and so on, how much do we get the confounders out of the picture? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because it's one thing to say, yeah. you know, meat eaters yeah. live one less year, yeah. and on the other hand, to say this reduces your life expectancy. Yeah, yeah, one yeah, year. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely right. No, well, there's two issues really. Um, <coughs> essentially, all these epidemiological studies only show associations, they don't show causation at all. So, I should never use the language this reduces your life or takes half an hour of your life. I, the long-winded way is to say, you know, um, the, this is associated with a risk that's equivalent to a causal factor that would take off. <laughs> and that's what, it, what I'm really saying, averaged over many people in many lifetimes. And that's what it really means. The shorthand is, a sausage takes half an hour if you like. Which, of course, it doesn't, because for some we don't know, if it, what it, would, it would never do that exactly. And we've no idea of the causal effect of these things. Some of them we do. The smoking, pretty, pretty reliable. Some of the others, the, uh, even the alcohol probably is not bad to eliminate, get that out as a separate factor. But it's general dietary stuff is very difficult. The meat stuff, there's a lot, a lot of meat things, and the processed meat, I think, is, is reasonably convincing. The problem is eating a lot of meat is associated with less exercise, smoking, more drinking, etc., etc., so trying to separate out the effect of a single stimulus from all that lot, you can do all the statistical regression analysis, but actually that is not going to take it out all the time. So, and, and they're all associated with socioeconomic status as well. So trying to get a single factor out. So you really, you have to look at you know, the fact that there's you know, good consistency in these results. Um, the interesting study, you know the study that's all, the major studies are based on Seventh-day Adventists? Yeah, no, there's multiple Seventh-day Adventist studies who are supposed to be vegetarian, but it's some meat-eaters in But otherwise should have, a, you know, not exactly a homogeneous lifestyle, but should not quite actually be so different as you'd expect in the general population. So the major study has been a Seventh-day Adventist. Isn't that extraordinary? So they're, they're providing a lot of the information on the effect of vegetarianism. <laughs> One last question, gentlemen, there. How, wait for the microphone. Yeah, just here in the blue shirt. Thank you. Hello. Um, you said deliberately that your breast cancer screening uh, brochure doesn't make a recommendation. Um, <coughs> can you just talk a little bit about why that was and does it represent a change between the relationship between experts and yeah. the general public. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's a very important, a very important um, change in doctrine, essentially. Um, it, it came about because of deep controversy about the previous leaflet. Many doctors were really unhappy about it, been complaining about it. You know, BMJ, British Medical Journal, full up with discussion about the breast cancer leaflet. So, I mean, it was really Mike Richards, I think, who was then the cancer czar, and I, a fantastic guy, um, you know, essentially commissioned this group to draw it up, which were, draw up these leaflets that propounded this philosophy. Now, it may change, you know, fears that they may swing the other way and we'll go back to leaflets saying screening is a great thing. 
but this is a real change in philosophy and it's very radical and, and people are amazed elsewhere in the world that we're, that we're doing it. I think it's very good. It's getting away from the paternalistic approach. It's based on the idea of shared care, informed choice, and all those issues about how medicine is supposed to be practiced in the future. And so the, the interesting thing, of course, is that um, it says consider the offer is your decision. Most women, and, but it says, you know, go and talk to your doctor if you, if you, you know, if you, you, please go and talk to your doctor. So many women, not women, people, um, the general attitude to getting this kind of information is, is as follows. It's, it's, you know, people are very grateful for getting good information, balanced information. Thank you very much for telling me that, Doctor. What do you think I should do? <laughs> what would you do? What would you do with your family? What would your wife do? It's exactly what I would say as well. It's a completely rational way to respond, and that's generally what people respond. So people would l want to know the information, then want advice. Um, not many people will really engage system two and make this balanced, rational choice. And I, it's, it's because, as I said, I don't think it's very difficult to do it on something as so emotive as breast cancer. Really, you know, it's a terribly emotional thing. But um, at the same time, I think it's an ethical duty to try to provide information of the system two kind um, and then people can do what they want. <coughs> so that's, I think it's actually an ethical duty to provide this stuff. Okay, thank you all very much for your questions. Just to remind you, um, David's book, The Norm Chronicles, will be outside, and David will be um, signing that uh, for any of you who wish to purchase it. So could I ask you to, first of all, just wait till David's left the room before you get up and leave so he can get to the sales point and do all of that. <laughs> but, but more importantly... Um, join with me in thanking him for what's been an absolutely fantastic presentation tonight.